Once you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Hello, beloved listeners. This is Adrian Marie Brown, and I am your co-host for Octavius Parables, and I'm here with my beautiful co-host, Toshi. Toshi Regan is here in the house. Yes, and we are coming to you for chapter 23 of the Parable of the Sower. And for our brief announcements this morning, um, I guess it's not morning, (laughs) and who knows when you'll be listening to this, but our brief announcements for this chapter, um, we want to continue with introducing you to the Octavia Butler Tarot team. And today, I want to introduce you to our art directors, Krista Franklin and Crystal Clarity. Krista Franklin is someone who years and years ago, over a decade ago now, um, I came across a project that she had created called Seed that was a set of collages that embraced Octavia's work and uplifted Octavia's work and I started following her as an artist, um, went to a few things that she was organizing in Chicago and was just blown away by her steady, whimsical nature. Like she's an artist's artist um, and she produces and creates and collages beautiful work um, and beautiful communities. And Crystal Clarity is a Brooklyn-based artist who is outstanding when it comes to being a radical artist, right? Living a radical artistic life. So a lot of Crystal Clarity's work has been in direct partnership with movement building and with creating murals and creating banners and creating art that can be used um, for the sake of advancing justice. And it's it's gorgeous work. It's hip hop era is powerful. And Crystal was like, I'm making an Oracle deck just magically. And <laughs> I was like, mm. Hey, you should be a part of this. <laughs> so, yeah, um, and so they have emerged as our art directors and they're fierce and really helping us understand, um, how to weave this together with artists in a good way. So, um, Amazing. any announcements from you? Beloved yeah. Toshi? I'm going to announce that uh, I have a new record coming out. It's called Beautiful World. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I would also love to announce uh, my collaboration with Alexis Pauline Gums um, Mm -hmm. uh, for the musical version of her Marine Mammal Meditations um, featured in um, the fabulous book, Undrowned. Um, mm. that's a part of the emergent strategy series. So I'm, I'm hyped about both of those projects. So much hype. This is, we're living a very good creative life here. Yes. So Toshi, will you bring us into chapter 23, which is, um, still in Virgo season in 2027? Yes. yes. Your teachers are all around you. All that you perceive all that you experience, all that is given to you or taken from you, all that you love or hate, need or fear will teach you if you will learn. God is your first and your last teacher. God is your harshest teacher, subtle, 
demanding, learn or die. Earthseed, the books of the living, Friday, September 10th, 2027. Mm. Mm-hmm. She ain't never playing around. Uh, she ain't never playing. You gonna learn or die. Nah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what's happening in this chapter? Um, this chapter is one of my favorite chapters in the book, and it's kind of the the humbling chapter that you know you can prepare a lot, but um, as you as you grow and as your community grows, you know you start to see um, the widening shape of possibilities and kind of realize like you're not in charge of everything, like you're holding uh, a particular uh-huh. way of being, but you can't actually control all the elements within it. So um, they have a, a, you know, another battle to sleep through. And I remember reading that for the first time, like, could you ever sleep through a battle? And then I, I think about, you know, our people and our ancestors and all of the Mm -hmm. many ways that they had to find rest um, while they were in states of struggle or states of escape. Um, And, you know, from some of, my people who have been and who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, right. um, the lot talks about like being inside of the system um, and trying to find rest and and peace and quiet and things like that. And um, it's it's all it it is it is really really uh, some kind of thing that humans form form to be able to be in dangerous situations and and be like, but we have to sleep. So. Yeah. There they are um, on their journey, sleeping, and there's another gun battle happening. And then it gets quiet, and Lauren is like, you know, contemplating what it means to be in these states of of doing this. And she says that, you know, somebody's keeping watch, but somehow during or after the battle, in spite of the watch, two people sleep into, slip into their camp. And um, she woke up, and she finds that there's... There's like these little masses of people with their legs sticking out and other people in the group discover it. And yeah. and basically they find in what looks like a woman and her child uh, and the yeah. child's about seven years old and they are in, you know, in really, 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 really desperate conditions. Um, yeah. They don't, they don't brown really skin. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're brown skin. And later she, she's like, oh, you know, she, she appears to be Asian and they're very, very, um, unkept. And, um, she's, she is really, really kind of looking at this situation. I think back on the last chapter that had children in it and we talked about, oh, you know, what does it mean to try to take care of a child in these situations? And what does it mean if, you don't have any resources and any support and how do you how do you care and this yeah. is this is where we get to meet kind of one of the answers to that question so this woman has nothing like it right. appears like like the the group has packs and they have food and they're together um everybody got a pair of shoes they got weapons you know they have they have a an abundance <laughs> compared to these two exactly. people. And, exactly. um, and so it's, it's where they start to like actually have a conversation about what does it mean to incorporate these people into their group? And it's kind of a, you know, a thing because Lauren, 
as they're looking at the people, Lauren is like, I want to give them some food. I want to help them. The people are terrified of them, um, especially the mother. And so instead of like offering them to stay, she offers food. Everybody offers food. So they, they make them kind of a little pack of food so that they, they, that, you know, especially the child could be fed. And soon after that, the woman realizes that they're not, they're not horrible people. Yeah. That seeing them with the children, seeing how their generosity, the woman realizes that they are not, and she wants, she wants to stay with them. And another yeah. thing that happens in this particular situation is that, um, that Lauren realizes that there was a breakdown. So Jillian was supposed to be on watch. She was, she, whatever happened, she didn't do a good job. Um, now they're all gathered around this woman and the child <laughs> and, and then she realizes like, wait a minute. Like, and so she asked Harry and Zara, like, can y'all go out and like, and, and establish a watch because, yeah. you know, we're now we're out here and kind of vulnerable. Um, so that happens. You want to go into that a little bit more? Well, I think the thing that, I think this is what you're speaking about. The thing that stands out to me here is that it's tuning into these bodies and being able to notice, learn, pay attention to the fact that these are bodies that have experienced abuse. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's a desperation there, but there's also trauma in these bodies, both the woman's body and the child's body. You know, I think Jill and Allie particularly are those who are able to notice the abuse in these Mm -hmm. bodies and that they have their own history with abuse and that it shows up in how they show up and it shows up in what they feel open to in terms of these newcomers. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think there's a really interesting conversation around how do we respond to traumatized people? You know, on one hand, we can be like, well, we should be really scared that these people are going to steal from us because they are traumatized and they're desperate. And there's no way that we can get them to necessarily trust us in the time it would take for them to actually roll with us. Um, And then the other side of that is actually these people are traumatized and they really need Mm -hmm. us. And we have enough that we can take them on. And can we trust our kindness to be compelling enough to help them become a part of this group and harry notices that in lauren you know that that lauren is becoming more open to helping strangers yes which you know she admits (laughs) and she's like this might not actually be a good change right um she's not sure yet and i appreciate there's so many moments when you know there's so much that lauren knows and she knows and she has studied and she's ready to bring to bear but there's also moments like this that happen so often throughout the book where she doesn't know. Yeah. She's worried that she may not be making the right move. She is moving based on trust, trying to process all the information that's coming in. And But I really appreciate that fundamentally what they choose to do is say, yes, we're going to mm-hmm. let these two people join us while also attending to like reprimanding Jill for, mm-hmm. um, you know, letting two people slip into their camp and bed down during her watch. And, you know, one of the juxtapositions I love in this chapter is that Jill and her sister, Allie, they come from abuse, like yeah. serious abuse. And so 
we get to see in this chapter that Jill gets this criticism, which hurts and which, mm-hmm. you know, she has a fragility that comes from her abuse history, but she's able to handle this. And I think it's a small detail, but it always strikes me as very important that Octavia chose to include it here because it's it's like even if people have experienced abuse and trauma, when you land in a community that honors your dignity, right, you quickly begin to accumulate the skills of being seen as a whole person and being a part of a community, which include being able to receive criticism and grow from it rather than shut you down, you know, let it shut you down. So those are some things that really stand out to me. I also think Emery's history is really interesting. She's 23 here. Um, and her daughter, Tori, is nine. And she had a Japanese father, a black mother, a Mexican husband, um, <laughs> all of whom are dead now. Yes. And she got married the first time at 13 to a much older man, right, <laughs> who yeah. promised to take care of her. And they were working on one of those agribusiness farm conglomerate spaces where the wages were paid in company scripts. So the workers were like in basically automatic debt. And that was, you know, a throwback, right, to Olivar, right? It's like, this is what our crew has avoided getting into. But Emery and then the children that she had with her husband, when her husband died from illness, she and the children became responsible for the debt and her sons were taken from her. And yes. so we, she's here because she decided to run away with her remaining daughter rather than risk losing her daughter as well. And every time I read this section, it turns my stomach. The idea of having to leave some of your children behind, knowing that you may not ever be able to find or find them again to escape with another child and actually survive. It's just heartbreaking. So Oof. anyway, so we learn a ton about what Emery has come through and why why she walks with that overt trauma. And Tori is not seven, actually. She's nine, which is mm-hmm. also one of those things that speaks to the condition that they're in. Yeah. Where she looks yeah. like a seven-year-old. Like she right? looks really young. This mm-hmm. is this um this whole chapter inspired a song that didn't actually make it into the opera, but it was called um Runaway. And it was mostly an, an instrumental song, but it was based on the kind of communi- communication that Emery and her daughter had around protecting themselves in situations that were almost like not, uh, that were almost like, you know, I got this sense that they practiced what to do. If, uh-huh. if someone comes towards you at, you know, hit the ground and do this, if this happens, yep. do this, if that happens. And the song was like um, basically an opportunity to, to teach your your children traveling with you um, what to do in emergency situations, and, and Ooh, but that sounds like a very necessary song for us all to hear.
and the next part of this chapter um, also inspired it. I want to say how much I love the conversation where they're trying to decide um, if they keep Emery in the group or not, because they're that conversation, which is also mixed with, like you say, where Jill is, yes. um, you know, where they're trying to get Jill to like really accept the level of what watching is. <laughs> um, it's, it's like, you know, and I, and I, I think about that all the time. Like, what's the level of, I wonder if this is one of your questions. What's the level of a task you're given and how yeah. do you know what it is? I hope yep. that's one of your questions. Cause, cause you <laughs> I, asked, said it, I worded it a little differently, but yes. You did? Okay. <laughs> I'm like, mm. okay. So you I, know, cause I, my whole thing is always like, how can you trust anyone to do anything? <laughs> yeah. But yes. Yes. I, I, I feel like that. that. And uh, I won't go on about that. If that's a question, we'll talk about it then. Mm-hmm. And but I love how they kind of are like, this is unsure, um, but they're naming the things out loud. What could happen? Well, she'll steal. The, the child will steal. Like, you know, they're saying all the things and then they're like, we can deal with this. So I find that level of realness and that level of of concern around the kids also Lauren, you know, really talking about what, no, actually it's Emery talking about like uh-huh. what her experience has been and what she has seen. And um, also in the opera, like, you know, we didn't have the kids in the opera, but we had, and Emery, um, Emery moves around a lot. Like she, she doesn't yes. stay in one place. She moves around. She observes. Um, she's the, the poorest person that you see on stage like she and she's the one who will beg for water or will will just try to figure out a safe way to get something mm-hmm. um but she's one of the most brilliant people yeah you know or and she is one of the most brilliant people and she's yeah. had to make decisions that you know none of us ever hope we ever have to make right so mm-hmm. good yeah so the yeah. other the other thing is yeah. The child Tori finds two more people to join the group. Oh right, the ch- yeah. through child through playing. Yes, right. Isn't that my yes. memory right? Yeah. Yes, you got it. So we get Dope. one of mm-hmm. one of my favorite characters in this book is Grayson Mora. Yes, um, <laughs> we get Grayson. Grayson, who just is like Grayson and Lauren, do not get along at all. Nope. Grayson Mora and his daughter Doe, and. Only a, a year younger than Tori, and uh, these two little girls are are playing together and walking along, and in some way they become a they become friends. And as they are turning west, I love the directions in the book. So they're on Highway Twenty, and they're turning back towards US One Hundred One, and yep. they're walking and walking and walking and walking and walking, and they're heading. Um, they spend time to talk about settling on Ben Coley's land, and about yeah. jobs and about crops and about what they might be there. And meanwhile, these two little girls are making friends and pulling their parents together. Uh, yeah. I love, I love this so much. Grayson yeah. is a, is a tall, thin black Latino. He's very quiet. He's very protective and is a little tentative. And, yeah. you know, you could tell he liked Emery, but we, I, we loved Grayson in the show because Grayson is somebody who's um, also survived like a lot of terror. Um, yes. Grayson is is had you don't you don't know yet, but Grayson has had. Um, they suspect he was a slave. 
Yes. And Emory really um, has a lot to say about what that means and what are the opportunities available for people because of where she's come from. And so right. this whole situation of them really connecting, um, having an understanding of each other. Um, but he, it, it's not like a, a warm and fuzzy feeling, him joining the group. Like no. It's not, and I, I really appreciate that the way they speak about it, it's like, what is the what is the marking of slavery in the body? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think about this a lot for um, descendants of, of enslaved people here in the U.S., and I've written about this as it's this, like, inch of of our dignity, that there's a way that we are always a a bit shrunken and part of our work is reclaiming that, you know, and in this text, it shows up as nervousness as Mm -hmm. not being able to actually rest down because there's a constant waiting for right punishment or order or control. Right. So there's that jumpiness that move, 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 move. Mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate here that, you know, for Bancole, he's like, there's something wrong with him. Right. Like, this is not something we should keep around. And Lauren hears that. Um, and she, it's not even that she argues with him about like, okay. <laughs> but I think that her framing on it is they've become a modern underground railroad. Yes. And that, you know, there's something starts to emerge in her. This is the beginning of starting to understand, I think a little bit more what her purpose is with this destiny. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, Bancoli also is like, well, and there's always been an underground railroad, like throughout history, different groups have had to call on that strategy. So this is, you know, I think that's a beautiful moment between them. (laughs) You know, that's like, it's not new and it is something. And I think he can see that, that, where she sits in it, you know, she's on the fence a little bit. Like I want us to be available for this. If this is the call of this group. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think yeah. like, well, look at the kids. Like the kids are like, this kid exactly. is cool. Like, exactly. Yeah. The kid like, is cool. We, we can play. We can play like, well, mm-hmm. you know, let us all just be together. Um, yeah. Towards the end of this chapter, Emery is talking about um, a law that is forcing people or their children to work off debt that they can't help running up and and that it's becoming a a legal, a legal law. And that makes me think about, that makes me think about like where we are right now and Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, the one exciting thing about this election to me is that it, it, to me, it demonstrates us like um, taking action on the legal system in this country like the kinds of decisions that can be made in our name and whether or not mm-hmm. we, we let them slip through. Um, That's right. and, and this, this whole thing about a living wage, um, the United States, um, government is not been interested in a living wage in, in decades. Mm. We're so behind. It's just not, it's like the United States government is interested in struggle and is interested in shaping whatever eco economic levels you are, there's a mm-hmm. tension, you know, there's a, there's a big tension, but especially inside of our middle class and inside of people who um, 
are are working with very, 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 very limited budgets at their entrepreneurship. That's what I call it. When you make a way out of no way, you are an entrepreneur. You are creating on such a different level. And our country tends to put more burden on those people and create more restraint in the legal system instead of like, you know, well, let's make it easier. Let's make it more open. Let's make it more abundant. People who are super, super wealthy. Hey, looking at you, Amazon, like, get you know, every break in the world, like every discount in the world. And so Mm. to me, it's this is something for us to all keep an eye on is these legal battles against independent um, people, the the whole things around. Um, the shared economy businesses like Uber or the car sharing things or the way that the uh, the employees get treated. I just read a thing in one country where they were like, if people decide to keep working from home, they should get taxed more because yeah. they're working from home. Like somebody is thinking about that. Like, yeah. it's just so that shows you like like the way governments think and that and why. It is so important for us to have our hands all over our local and federal governments. Like, let's just make it a big part of our lives because these people are not not thinking about a living wage. I think we are we haven't had um, a living wage since the 60s. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. been a long time. And when I say that, I mean that people um, have an, an economy um, yeah. that matches the, where they are. Like you can pay for housing and you can pay for food and all of those things have gone up and the wages have, have stayed the same. So, yeah. um, yeah. this is a necessary battleground. And here we are in 2027 and they're saying, well, yeah, now the kids and the relatives can, um, can have to pay off debt and that's legal. And yes, mm. we don't want that. We don't want that. Um, no, and, the, and yeah, go ahead. I was just going to close out by saying that Ben Coley really recognizes how much things are breaking down. And he look he's looking at how these yeah. people survived. Like how did a woman and her, her young child survive on the highway? Um, and he says they're, they're little, he calls them little rabbits because they're very fast and they're very silent. And that's why they're still alive. Um, so. Oh, yeah, yeah. This chapter, (laughs) it's such a good one. It's such a rich one. And I have a lot of questions. The first questions I have are around this trauma piece and it's, do you know how to see trauma in the bodies and faces of others? And do you know the ways your own trauma is visible? I think about this often. I remember being in a somatics class one time and the I was standing next to one of the senior teachers and, and I was it was a teaching team. I was on a teaching team and she like leaned over and was like, yeah, do you see this set of the shoulder and the way arms people who clasp their hands in a certain way. And she's like, those are, those are generally signs of childhood sexual abuse. And it was so clear, you know, I was just Mm. like, Oh, ah. And now I see that 
often everywhere. Uh, and I rarely, rarely, you know, if I, if I move into a conversation with someone and we get to that level, it's rarely off, right? It's mm. like there are these clear signals um, and that show up across different kinds of bodies. So it always makes me think like what's showing up in my own body? What, what can people read off of my body? The second question I have here is, do you respond to traumatized people with compassion, with boundaries, or with both? Mm. I think there's lots of ways to respond, but I think there is that general, you know, that general question of like, what abundance do you have in you? What time do you have in you? Where are you focused? Where are you putting your energy? And how does that shape your response to people who show up who clearly have trauma? Right. Yeah. Hmm. And then this question I have with, you know, that moment where Harry's like, you're changing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that always makes me, I'm like, who do, who do you trust to notice the changes in you? And I like the idea that I'm always changing <laughs> and I'm coming to accept that I'm always changing, but I don't always respond well when someone tells me I'm changing, <laughs> um, you know, one way or the other, sometimes I will defer, you know, that I'm like, mm, I'm the, still the same old Adrian. Don't worry about it. Um, sometimes I'll get defensive, you know, but it's important actually to have people you trust who can notice that you are changing and help you yeah. see the ways you are changing. So who do you trust to notice the changes in you? Yes. Another question I have here that's more relational, and maybe we can spend some time on this because this is the one. This is the this is how I worded the question that you you generated during this session. I had written, "How do you trust other people to have your back? How do you mm -hmm. trust other people to have your back?" And I really like how you said it. You were like, "How do you know that a task is done like to the level, like sufficiently, right? Especially when your safety is on the line." Um, mm. And I think this is one that a lot of leaders really wrestle with is like, yeah, how do you, when you said this is the task, you are on watch, right? How do you also set the standards for that watch? And yeah, I would ask you that, Toshi. How do you trust other people to have your back? Well, I just, I feel like they were wrong to have one person on watch considering that they're uh -huh. outside mm -hmm. and all of the violence that's around them. So I, I actually thought that was a... um that was a mistake by leadership. <laughs> so right. Just like, why right. are you, why are you doing that? Like you're still outside and how is it possible for one person to watch <laughs> like, you know, directionally, like what's happening right. and it's dark and you're and I just was like, no, that was a mistake. It should always be much. two people. Um, so I'm, I'm here for, you know, Jill, like spacing out and looking at the trees for a second and those people, I'm um, being very stealth. So like I would say, but there's such great value in really being able to, to like measure whatever the, the task is or the job is. And I remember my grandmother teaching me how to wash glasses and because I would, she would just be like, wash the glasses. And then she would leave me like two glasses. I was little. Um, mm. And then I washed the glasses and she'd be like, this glass is not washed. You know, and I'd be like, yeah, it is like, look, it's, it's clear, <laughs> you know, and she'd be like, feel it, no. you know, 
And I yeah. feel it, and it was it was smooth and not you. You're not supposed to. It's not supposed to be smooth. Like it's your, you know, your hand has to like be stopped by its clean cleanliness. So mm. <laughs> um, I love that. I will never forget that lesson because that actually let me know. Um, and I tell y'all, I was little, but it let me know that what I when I thought something was complete, it's possible that it wasn't. And it was possible that I had missed something. And um, it's possible that I'm not doing all of what is being asked for me or what I actually said I would do myself. And um, (laughs) and, yeah, so it's, Mm. you know, and I think the, the same thing of being in collaborative spaces is that, you know, it's such a wonderful thing to be, but all of us come to um everything with different different levels and, and anybody that's had to like, you know, share space. I remember telling my daughter like when she was going to, to college and I was like, yo, people is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Just be ready. Yes, it's I was like, the people there. are disgusting. <laughs> and she was like, no, mom, you know, and I was like, no. I was like, don't leave your towel or your washcloth or anything anywhere, you know, because I was like, like, and she's like, but where do you put it? I was like, you have to get a hanger Nowhere. in your in your thing. And like, that's just for your towel and your washcloth. Yes. And which was disgusting to her, like that you would put your towel and washcloth in your actual room and not have it in the bathroom. I was like, girl, people are gross. People are going to put their hands on your towel and washcloth. They're going to use Whoa, your stuff. No. Yo. And I was like, <laughs> make sure you clean everything, you know, coming and going. Yeah. This is before COVID, y'all. I was like, I cannot tell you, this is basics, right? And so within the first week, she was like, every single thing you said has happened. Like every, every, so the levels of people's learning and understanding and care are so different. Um, Mm. And the same thing happens in situations with music. Uh, You know, Mm. some people really, really prepare. Um, They come in, they know everything. And other people don't spend time you know, before the rehearsal, when they come into the rehearsal, you actually have to teach them at the rehearsal. (laughs) And I think that that more applies because we hold rehearsals um, to be very special in my family. And Mm -hmm. we think the people who are with you are the people who show up at the rehearsals. You know, who's in the gang, the people who show up at the rehearsals ready to go. Um, and the people who don't, we might, we might be able to use them, but (laughs) like we in a little bit more vulnerable position. Oh, I really appreciate everything you just shared there because, you know, I think this has been a big learning for me as I have figured out the kind of leader that I am and the kind of leader that I'm not. And I realized that for a long time, you know, I would want to be collaborating with people, but I would expect them to have read my mind and somehow found in my mind without me saying it, the standard and to just intuit the way that I would want things to happen. And I think what I have gotten much better at is if I want to do something exactly the way I want it done, then I just do that project on my own. Mm. (laughs) And then if I want to actually collaborate with people, like learning to be much more clear with communicating what I'm longing for, but also holding everything with much looser hands, right? Mm. That I'm like, oh, I have to be willing to have this be done differently than I would do it. And 
then the standard comes in with choosing who to collaborate with rather than like what happens in the collaboration. So, you know, I, if, if I give someone a certain kind of tasks or if someone agrees to a task and then it's done, it's not done very well. Mm -hmm. um, I look at that as data, right? I'm like, what, what can I learn from this data rather than like, how can I give up on this person? I'm really like, okay, from this data, can I understand that this person doesn't like this kind of task or that they need more information to do it well, or that I made an assumption about the standard or I made an assumption about the clarity. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's helped a lot to actually humble myself in this way. And, and this is big for me as a Virgo to recognize that there's also things I do that don't hit the standards other people have. <laughs> right. You know, that's right. You know? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, like, you know, I wasn't as on time as someone wanted me to be, or I wasn't as thorough. You know, I tend to be big visionary fast. Mm-hmm. And so I try to partner with people who are like deep, slow, thorough, um, because I find that that balance works well. And, and then if someone gives me a task, I may not do it thoroughly. I may do yeah. it in a big, visionary, dazzling way. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, it's good for me to work with people who are like, um, but hold on. It could right. be better. It could be more thorough. It could be this. These are the steps so, to take. Yeah. So I think applying that to safety takes everything up a notch, right? Is It's like I can't afford as much time to gather the data. So, mm-hmm. you know, we need to be in a scenario where we learn the lesson quickly. Like, oh, we need two people on watch. That's the lesson. Or, yes. oh, like you're not good for night watch. That's the lesson. And like, right. let's learn it and adapt and keep it moving. And I really appreciate um, watching Lauren process the data and try to figure out the right move. Yeah. And I love like, you know, I'm just going to go back to the beginning where she says your teachers are all around you. Yeah. All that you perceive, all that you experience, all that is given to you or taken from you, all that you love or hate, need or fear will teach you. And she has, if you will learn. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it's interesting because I've, I've found being, especially with um, other artists, that my teachers are, are definitely all around me. And, yes. you know, in that practice of, you know, being collaborative with people younger than me so that I'm intentionally kind of being yeah. pushed has yep. also like really revealed, you know, that as much as I, I feel good about who I am in the world, that I am just in a state of learning like everybody else. And that exactly. you, and sometimes like I'm not clear about what I want, or sometimes I'm not putting people in good positions or sometimes like Somebody wants to do a, a really particular thing, but they don't want to do everything. <laughs> yes. Just, you know, <laughs> that it, part. It's, and, um, and when yeah. I work with other people, um, and have been a part of a team, like, it's like, I'm not in charge, but I'm like just somebody that is a part of, of some, uh, someone else's vision. That has always been an extraordinary practice to me too, mm-hmm. because I love how different people come to their work. Um, I just get, I get, I'm very nerdy and I'm one of those people who will sit and witness like people doing their work and especially in theater or something like that. I go to see my friends, 
you know, one of my favorite people to witness at work is Jacqueline Woodson. Um, mm. Mm. I go to her readings as much as I can because I love to see how she, um, how kids respond to her work and what they see from her and the questions that they ask and how she answers them. So, yeah, your teachers are all around you. I love that. And I think it's um, one of the ways to keep cultivating your good personness is to be looking for teachers. Mm. And I think, I can't remember who said this. There's someone, and maybe we can figure it out for the show notes, but there's someone who was like, even when someone is a challenge to you, particularly when someone is a challenge to you, recognize that that is also a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I think about that all the time um, when I think about these apocalyptic condition things. So I'm like, you know, I can imagine being thrown in with a group of strangers and trying to figure out, like, how do I communicate pleasure activism? (laughs) How do I communicate emergent strategy? How do I communicate the things that really matter to me? And then how do I be of use? Like, how do I find what is of use in me? And I can imagine I get challenged regularly by people. And in the current setting, you know, I can pick and choose which challenges, you know, I want to grow into a lot of the time. You know, and there's some challenges that I'm like, hmm, like, that feels like it would slow me down. I'm not interested in that or whatever. But something about reading these books always is like, yeah. And then there's times when you don't get to choose your challenges. You don't get to choose. You have to learn, like, mm-hmm. in the moment how to be with people who truly are different from you. Yes. So I have just a few more questions, the short ones. What is the Underground Railroad of this time? Who needs it? And are we actually doing what we need to do to make sure that we are using the technology that allows our people to be safe? So Mm. what is the Underground Railroad of our time, of our communities? And then how do we teach children to be quiet and to stay safe without traumatizing them? How do we teach children to be quiet and stay safe without traumatizing them? And, you know, Boncoli says that. He's like, these two little girls know how to be quiet, which will help them stay alive. But it does feel like these are traumatized children Mm -hmm. already, and that's how they've learned this. And I think about this a lot because I think a lot, a lot, like I think probably every day, about slaves running away. (laughs) Um, Mm. Like it's one of my constant, I think that there's some ancestral work and past life work and some other stuff that is moving through because it, it comes up more than I can control or understand. It's just with me all the time is running through the woods and the sounds of running through the woods, like the crackling of the branches underfoot and the leaves and just the way that you can hear everything in the woods and then thinking about trying to run with your children, your child um, or multiple children. And I've never met a child who was quiet when I wanted them to be quiet. (laughs) I've never, ever experienced that. So it, it is one of the things that I'm always trying to write around and feel for. And it, yeah, it scares me. Like how do we help our children be children, like these children know how to play with each other, but they also know how to survive. How do we yeah. teach that? You know, children come with so much information 
And mm-hmm. so, and are so instinctual and, mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean that, that they should ever be in a situation where they're running for their lives or having to learn a skill set to, to defend themselves from danger. You know, I, I talked to my mom about the, about sound, um, mm. one time because I was trying to understand what different technologies did to the voice, the black, black voices as we started to move out of situations of enslavement and start to be free and start to create our music, not just as transportation to our own freedom, but to actually become entrepreneurs as, as musicians. And I was like, you know, how do we do it? And how, you know, you will read in the books, like there's these hundreds of people around or, you know, and mom was like, you know, it wasn't as loud as it is now. And she's like, so like, if you think about how, you know, how we are now and how people can create sound and how people can, cannot create sound, like how people learn the lay of the land, like how people know which way to go, how people know how to walk around water, how, you know, just all of the different things like we have no awareness of because we're, you know, in these cities and um, and are not really isolated. And we can project our voices now around the planet because of technology, yes. like we're doing, like we're doing right now. So it's so interesting to, to look at this, this book where all of that is taken away. Yeah. And we're back in a situation where it's your body and your, um, ability to, to create and these like, you know, known slash unknown circumstances or, or ever changing times, however way you want to put it, you know? Um, yeah. 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 I think that's so crucial. And I, I also find, and maybe you have found this too, that something does happen when I find myself in the woods, something does happen when I find myself in nature, that there are some instincts in there that kick in and, I think children know these instincts too. You know, hide and seek is a game that (laughs) somehow children master immediately. (laughs) It's like, be quiet, count to 10. The final question that I have for this chapter is what is the safest pace of growth? Um, Mm. You know, so they are moving along and they keep two by two growing, right? Yeah. Two sisters, a mother and child, a father and child. And um, it's not necessarily that they have like a super set, secure culture internally, but there's something there that feels solid enough that it's becoming compelling for other people to move towards. And I think they're really sitting with this question in this chapter is, is this too fast? Are we ready? Can mm. we grow? You know? Um, but I think that's a really good question to sit with in community, in your own groups, um, in your own earth seed pods, in your own COVID-19 pods, right? Mm-hmm. Is what is the safest pace for growth? When do you maybe need to contract? How do you skillfully and intelligently bring people into your circle? How do you accept what God, you know, God has changed how do you accept what God sends your way? Um, and then how do you navigate the right pace of growth inside of that? Mm. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I'm going to be thinking about that. Yeah. I'm like thinking about it all the time. Mm-hmm. All right. So <laughs> Octavia's parables 
is hosted by Toshi Regan and myself, Adrian Marie Brown. It is produced by Kat Aaron, and our show art is by Krista Franklin. Um, music for Octavia's Parables is Always See the Stars, written and performed by Toshi Regan. Um, There's a New World Coming, written by Bernice Johnson Regan, with additional lyrics by Toshi Regan, performed by the cast of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower, the Opera, lead vocals by Shana Small, and Runaway, um, written and performed by Toshi Regan, which is not actually in the opera, but definitely speaks to this chapter. Perfect. Thank you so much for your musical generosity with us, Toshi. And mm, my pleasure. Um, listeners, you can find us on Twitter at O Parables. You can sustain this show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash O Parables. And we've just got about two chapters left. So wow. we're, we're, we're winding down um, and there's still some really exciting things to come. So see you next week. So see be ya. it. See to it. So be it. See to it.